me throw out a word, and I want to get your opinion or your first thought when it comes to mind. When I say the word discipline, what comes to mind? Typically, discipline is a negative thing. We hear the word discipline, and we think that's a negative thing. We think maybe vindictiveness, maybe judgment, punishment. How many of you think punishment? You can think back to discipline from your parents, remembering they would have that discipline called a belt. You remember that in that day and age? We, as people, we don't like discipline. We, we push back on the idea of, of discipline. We don't like it. Now, let me ask you this. When I say a different couple of words, I want to know what comes to your mind. When I say the words church discipline, what comes to mind? It gets challenging, doesn't it? If you've been in church a long time, uh, you've probably seen instances of church discipline done poorly. Uh, you think of vindictiveness. You think of judgment. You think of all these different things that come to mind. We as a culture, I think we struggle in general with, with this idea of discipline. We fight against it. We don't accept it, partly because it's kind of part of our psyche. In our culture, we have this, this rampant, incredible individualism. This individualism that, that basically says, I'm right, and nobody can tell me I'm wrong. Because we view ourselves as we're the person that sees things right, and if everybody else would see things the way that we see them, man, the world would be so much greater, right? We have this incredible individualism. In fact, there's a Christian author um, and speaker by the name of Jonathan Lehman, and, and he wrote a quote that I thought was fitting for this idea of, of church discipline. He said, the average person in the Western culture, every attachment is negotiable. We're all free agents. Every relationship, every life situation is a contract that can't be negotiated or canceled. Whether we are dealing with politicians or parents or spouses or a boss or a teacher or a judge or even the local church. This is why we are so quick to back out of situations when we're on the defensive. Because we have this, this, this uh, incredible individualism inside of us. And because we have this, he says we are obligated to maximize me and my life and my pursuit of happiness. Therefore, we retain the veto power whenever we are told that we are wrong. How many of us would say, yeah, that sounds about right? I get into a situation, and if I feel uncomfortable, if I don't like the way people are speaking or the way things are going, man, I reserve the right to veto and say I'm not going to stick around here anymore. The problem is, the problem is when, when discipline is done right, man, it is incredibly good. It's not a bad thing. When discipline is done right, it is, it is meant for our good. Think about parents. Parents, we want to discipline our kids. We want to teach our kids, hey, when you lie, there's going to be discipline. Because if you lie, as, as you continue to lie, it's going to create problems in your life. We discipline for our children's good because we want them to be better. We want them to be all that God would call them to be. Discipline is for our good, for our benefit. And when we step into the church... It's no different. In fact, if we are a Christian, and a Christian is this, a Christian is somebody who has uh, trusted in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. A Christian is somebody who has, has surrendered to the resurrection, believed in the resurrection, and surrendered our lives to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That is what it means to be a Christian. And if we are a Christian, if we are, sa we are saved, we are forgiven by God, but we still have this sin nature inside of us. On this side of eternity, while we're on the earth, we still have this sin nature that we will continue to wrestle with. Which means, 
because we still have this sin nature, there are still areas in our life that we're still struggling through. We still have maybe some areas of sin that God has not quite redeemed yet, that God is trying to chisel off, chisel off of us so that we become more like him. It's called this process of sanctification. And because God is in this continual work of making us new, of sanctifying us, that means at times, you and I, we can be blind to our own sin. That means at times, you and I, we can be arrogant and say, you know what, I, God, God, I understand this is what you say, how I'm supposed to live, but God, I'm going to choose to do my own thing anyways and, and disobey and disregard what you want and make a deliberate choice to sin. And this is where discipline and confrontation and correcting, it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. It's a helpful thing that God has given for our good because we can't see all, we can't see everything. We can't see everything. And when discipline is done right, when we have friends who love us and care for us and are willing to confront us and willing to challenge us, man, they are pointing us to being what God has called us to be. They're pointing us to being more than we are right now so that we can be who and what God has called us to be. It is incredibly valuable in the body of Christ, because we as Christians, our lives should be marked and ordered by the things of God. We should, people should be able to look at the church and say, this is what it means to follow God. This is what it means to be a Christian, that we are a people that are continually becoming like him. That if we say we're a Christian, if we say we are a part of a church, that should mean something. The type of person, maybe, that we are becoming. We're becoming what God is doing and redeeming in us. You see, you see this idea in higher education, right? Think about higher education. The college you go to, it kind of dictates the type of person you would expect from them depending on what school they go to. For example, Jacob and I both attended Moody Bible Institute. And so you hear that and you assume there are some assumptions made about the type of people who attend school and go to Moody Bible Institute. There are a standard that should be expected. The school defines what is expected. In order to graduate, you have to submit to an external authority. You have to submit to guidelines that are put in place for you, expectations. You have to meet the requirements in order to graduate. You can't just do whatever you want to do. You have, and if you don't follow the guidelines, guess what happens? You get removed. You no longer are a part of the organization. They have these clear guidelines about those who graduate and those who don't. Because when you graduate, they're putting a stamp of approval on you. They're saying, listen, listen, you have done what we've expected of you. And so for you to say, look, I'm an alumni of this place, there's this expectation, this is the type of person you are, this is the things that you've learned, this is the type of, a, of standard that we should expect from this person because they belong to this organization. Listen, I bring all this up because today we're continuing in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been looking at this book for the, about the past month, a letter that was written by Paul to a church not unlike a church like ours, a church in the city of Corinth. And Paul, we've seen in the last couple of weeks, Paul has been urging the church to have this unity around the gospel. Unity ar around what brings us, what makes us one in Christ. The fact that we all come to God empty-handed, dependent on him. Paul has been talking about the church and emphasizing, listen, you've got to prioritize the wisdom of God. 
that maturity and wisdom looks like this. It looks like we surrender all of ourselves over to God. And we need to begin to, to push back against the wisdom of the world based on popularity and status, which is one of the issues in the church of Corinth. But as we've been in this book, chapter 5 is going to bring a little bit of a transition. Now, instead of Paul talking to the church in general, now Paul is going to deal with some very specific issues within the, in the church. He's going to deal with an issue of, of sexual sin. He's going to deal with lawsuits and marriage and the freedom we have in Christ. There's all these things that Paul is going to address in the next couple of chapters that are, are extremely beneficial. But chapter 5, he's going to start dealing with discipline within the church. Because Paul's going to say when there are individuals within the church that are not living up to the standards that God calls us to live. Discipline is how God lovingly and, and carefully and graciously and with great conviction, discipline is how God manages his house well. Discipline is how God continues to redeem us as broken people that are striving to become more like him. In fact, I'd say that a church that embraces this idea of discipline becomes a self-correcting ecosystem. We become a self-correcting ecosystem where glaring hypocrisy begins to diminish, if not is eliminated altogether. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you have a Bible, you can follow along. I also have the words uh, of the scriptures we read behind me on the screen. We're going to first see the cause of discipline. It starts out in verse 1. Paul says, it's actually reported to me that there is sexually, sexual, sexual immorality among you, even the kind that is not tolerated amongst pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Listen, Corinth was similar maybe to our day and age where uh, they had a uh, welcome of different types of sexual freedom. Nobody could tell you what to do. You do you. If it feels right, go ahead and do it. In fact, in the city of Corinth, if you remember the introduction, we said that there was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite where you would actually worship God through cult prostitution. So this is a sexually lax culture. But they still had limits. And Paul says there's a man that is sleeping with his father's wife, which doesn't mean his mom. It probably references his stepmom. And Paul says, listen, even the non-Christians, even the Corinthians that had, had freedom and everything, even they have limits. And no, that's not okay. That's wrong. And so here's what Paul says, verse 2. <coughs> he says, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Do you notice, do you notice what Paul's upset about? You know, what, you know what Paul's upset about? The issue is not sexual immorality. I mean, that is an issue. It's going to be dealt with. But the issue for Paul, what he's upset about, is the church's response to the sexual immorality. Or rather, the church's lack of response. Because here in the church is saying, what Paul's saying is, is here in the church, the body of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, there is one of you that is an open, deliberate sin. And everybody else is standing by idly, doing nothing, saying nothing, acting as if everything is just fine. And Paul is outraged because of that. He's outraged at the silence. Let me just be clear here. When we start talking about sin and sexual sin and that sort of thing, we're not talking about people who are struggling with sin. The reality is we all struggle with sin at some degree. God doesn't expect perfection of us. 
Maybe you've been told that in the past. Listen, God does not expect perfection. But look what what Paul says in verse 8. He says, let us celebrate the festival, talking about communion, not with the old leaven of malice and evil, but with the leaven of but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Notice Paul doesn't say we celebrate with perfection and truth. God doesn't expect perfection out of us. He expects sincerity and truth, which means in sincerity. In sincerity, we are sincerely attempting to learn and to love and to live in the truth, which means we are sincerely trying to follow God, which means that we are humble, we are correctable, we are teachable. And when we're in the wrong, we acknowledge, hey, I'm in the wrong here. I've sinned here. I need to repent and make this right. The man that we're looking at in verse 1, this is a guy who is not following God in sincerity and truth. This is a man who is openly living in sin, defiantly disobeying the standards of God. Essentially, he's saying, listen, I don't care what God says. I want to do what I want to do regardless. And Paul says that's the issue. Paul says that's the issue. When there is open, defiant sin within the church, he said, the church, you ought to mourn. You ought, you, you ought to grieve over that. You ought to love one another enough to care about who we are becoming. That when we see a brother and sister, a friend, someone that we have dedicated our lives to following God together with, when we see someone in sin, man, we ought to grieve over that. We ought to be concerned about that. We ought to be willing to have some conversations with people because we care enough about them that we don't allow them to continue in sin. But what does the church at Corinth do? Nothing. They stand by idly. You begin to wonder, well, why didn't they do anything about this guy? He's clearly in the wrong. Why, don't, why didn't the church step in and do something? Well, we don't know. Maybe, maybe the man was wealthy. Maybe he was influential. And they were afraid to, to rock the boat. But look, look what it says in verse 2. Paul said, you are arrogant. In verse 6, he said, your boasting is not good. You know, I, I read that and I begin to think, maybe, maybe the church was trying to rationalize. Maybe the church was trying to say, look how, how accepting we are. Look how tolerant we are. We're tolerant of everybody. Everybody's welcomed here. Who are we to judge? You do you, we'll do me. You almost have this idea that they feel like, look how, how gracious we are with everybody. We're not saying anything. Look how great we are. We're boasting about that. And Paul is outraged. Paul says, that's not love. That's not love to let our friends continue in sin and make a shipwreck of their faith. If you've got, if you've got a friend that is drowning, you're not just going to stand by and let it happen. If you care about that person, you're going to do something. This is where love, love is an action. Love is a verb. Love does something. So what does Paul say to do? Verse 2, Paul says, the man should, removed, should be removed from among you. Drop down verse 11, Paul says, do not even associate with or eat with a man such as this. Verse 13, Paul says, that man should be purged from among you. Now, I'll be honest. That sounds rather harsh. That sounds rather difficult. That doesn't really sound loving, right? 
What Paul is saying is that when we have friends that are in open, deliberate sin, that the relationship has to change. We can't just go on like everything is normal. We can't act as, as if there's nothing going on. There has to be this drastic response of there's a change in our relationship because I can't just stand by and watch you continue down this path. And that step is meant to awaken that person up. In fact, here, here's the key. Paul's not just saying to remove that person because they're bad, because you're better than them. There, there, there's two reasons why Paul says to uh, discipline uh, this person. Two reasons why they should uh, do this. Two goals. Look at verse 3. Paul says, even though I'm absent with the body, I'm present in the spirit, which means, church, you're not alone. I'm with you. I'm with you. Verse 4, he says, when you have assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, which means that discipline comes not by the authority of Paul. This isn't something that Paul is saying to do. This is something that God says to do. In the church, this is what God says to do. Verse 5, he says, you are to deliver that man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved. Now, sometimes I read scripture and I'm like, what does that mean? That sounds pretty drastic. What does it mean when Paul says to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh? He's not talking about physical death. He's not referencing he should be uh, put to physical death. He's saying what needs to happen is we need to remove that person from the church into the world. They're no longer able to be a part of the church. Now we're going to leave them into the dominion of Satan, into the dominion of the world. So that way there's this drastic action that would that would awaken that person and lead them back to restoration. Lead them back to repentance. Lead them back to the point that they are fully surrendered to God. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul uses similar language about handing someone over to Satan. Paul is talking in 1 Timothy chapter 1 about two guys that have made a shipwreck of their faith. And Paul says, I delivered them over to Satan so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. See, the goal, the goal in discipline, the goal in, 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 in Scripture telling us to remove someone and change our relationship with them if they're in deliberate sin is not to punish them, is not to say, look how great we are and look how bad you are. The goal is restoration. The goal is reconciliation. The goal is redemption. That if we have a brother or a sister or a friend and they're in stubborn sin, they're in rebellion against God, it's not loving enough for us to say, you know what, I think what you're doing is a bad idea. No, Paul says, if you truly love them, love says, if this doesn't change, I fear for your soul. If you continue walking in open, deliberate sin, and you choose to rebel against God, I fear for your soul. In fact, the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, says, if we deliberately go on sinning, after we've received a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. Catch this. We need to hear this. That proof that we have a relationship with God, proof that we have a relationship to Him, is that we have surrendered our lives and will over to Him. We're going to follow His will and His ways. And if we continue in deliberate sin... We're proving that we haven't fully surrendered ourselves over to God. 
that when we choose to say, God, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do what I want to do, that is proof that we have not fully surrendered ourselves over to God. And Paul would say, listen, the greatest thing that we could do as a church, if we love those people, is say, listen, you need to repent. You need to have your heart changed. You need to surrender this back to God. And I'm willing to say this relationship can't continue in the same way. Listen, I recognize discipline oftentimes, it's done for the wrong reasons. In fact, there was a church that my wife and I attended to when we were younger. And uh, that church, if you were caught in public sin, You'd be brought up on stage in front of everybody, and that sin would be shared before the church. I don't know why. I, I don't think it was for reconciliation. I don't, I don't think it was for redemption. Maybe it was for shame or, or, or put maybe the fear in the rest of the church. But the biblical idea of discipline is that you remove a member of the church, you change your relationship with them, and hoping that that drastic action of removing them from the community would lead to their restoration, would lead to their redemption, would lead to their repentance. That's the first goal behind discipline. The second goal behind discipline is there's a protection for the community as a whole. There's a protection for the body of Christ as a whole. Look what he says in verse 6. Paul says, Do you not know that a little, little leaven, it leavens the whole clump? So cleanse out the old leaven, that there may be a new lump. For Christ, the Passover lamb, has already been sacrificed. See, Paul has this metaphor about yeast and leaven. Now, if you know anything about these things, yeast wasn't readily available back in the day that Paul was writing this. Leaven was more used. Leaven is simply a, a, a piece of leftover dough from a previous uh, baking uh, bread. Maybe for, you that, for those of you that baked during COVID, you needed that bread thing. You had that sourdough starter. That's kind of what we're talking about. That's like, kind of like leaven. You've got this sourdough starter. And what would happen is you take this leftover piece of, of, of bread and you begin to put it in with another lump of bread. And that piece would begin to ferment throughout the entire uh, new loaf. And it would spread and cause that bread to rise. What Paul is saying is a church, us as the church, the body of Christ, we are one body. Which means we belong to one another. What one of us does, it impacts the whole. That is how connected we are supposed to be as a body of Christ. That when one of us struggles, we all feel it. When one of us has open, defiant sin, it has social effects on every one of us. That's where, when we have someone who's open, defiant sin, the rest of us look and say, well, if they're okay doing that, then maybe I'm okay doing that too. And pretty soon, the church begins to get watered down, and pretty soon there's no difference between those of us in the church who claim Christ as our Savior versus those in the world who don't. There's little difference in how we live our lives versus how the rest of the world live their lives. So Paul is saying Jesus, the Passover lamb, he was sacrificed to make us a new clump. That Christ was sacrificed to make us new, to make us like him, to make us obedient, to make us an effective witness in the world. So Paul says, listen, because it's that significant, we have to be willing to remove an old lump, a lump that's going to be dangerous to the rest of us, in order for us, the rest of us, to be who God has called us to be. Imagine it this way. Imagine, imagine you go to the doctor's office. 
You go to the doctor's office, and the doctor says, hey, I've got some bad news. I found a little tumor inside of you. I found a little tumor, but it's okay. It's just a little thing. It'll take a long time before it grows. It's okay. No, that wouldn't be okay. Imagine the doctor saying, well, I found a little tumor in you, but it's just a little cell, you know, and we should be more understanding of cells, and so it's okay. No, if you find a tumor in me, I'm like, take me to the, the operating room to cut that thing out of me. I don't care if it's going to hurt. I don't care. I, I want that thing out of me because it's what my whole body needs to be healthy and whole. That is what Paul is trying to instruct the church on. Is that significant that we protect the whole of the church so sin doesn't just continue to spread? So discipline. Discipline is meant for the restoration of the individual, to redeem the individual as well as to protect the whole church. I'll be honest. Discipline is hard. Discipline is hard. It's awkward. It's difficult. And I think what's happened is, is over the last couple hundred years of, of church culture, we found an easier way for us to practice discipline. In fact, look what Paul says in verse 12. He says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church that you are to judge? God judges those on the outside. See, what Paul's about to do is Paul's about to step on some toes in the church world. Because in Christian circles, oftentimes we have things backwards. In Christian circles, we got things backward. We are so quick to, to uh, condemn those in the world. We are so quick to say, look how bad the world is, and judge them because they're not living according to the way that God calls them to live. And so we condemn them. We even remove ourselves from them. I can't be around evil people. So we judge the world on the same side we get soft on those inside the church. Well, it's okay. There's grace for you. There's forgiveness for you. We judge those on the outside, those that we don't know, because we find it probably a little easier than us judging those on the inside, those that we have a relationship with. In fact, you think about the world. What is the opinion the world has of the church? What is the church known for? We're known for judgment and hypocrisy. Isn't it terrible that that's what the church is known for? Judgment and, and hypocrisy? Why? Because we are so quick to condemn the immorality of the world. We're so quick to condemn homosexuality and idolatry and greed and all these different things. Listen, why would we expect the world? Why would we expect the world to live according to God's standard when they don't know God? Well, they don't love God. They haven't surrendered to God. Why would we expect that? In fact, I think about this. I love our country. I love our country. And our country was founded on some Christian principles. But our country is not heaven. We can't, we can't legislate morality. We can't legislate morality. We can't legislate people become a Christian. So why would we assume that we're going to take our, our, our morality and put that on people who don't know God? What that does that sets the church up to being incredibly judgmental and hypocritical. In fact, this is what Paul says in verse 9. He says, I wrote a letter to you not to associate with these sexually immoral people. This is some previous letter. He said, I wrote to you and said, don't associate with people who are openly sinning. But verse 10, he says, I wasn't meaning the sexually immoral of the world. I wasn't meaning the greedy of the world, the swindlers of the world, the idolaters of the world, because if you did that, you'd have to go out of this world. He said, I wasn't talking about that. 
He's saying we're not called as Christians to separate ourselves from the world. We're called as a church. We're called to be salt and light. We're called to be a witness. We're called to be in the world and get close to the world in order, in order to win them over to Christ through love. And that is what we are called to do. Our, judge, our job is not to judge the world. Our job is to love the world. But here's what he says in verse 11. Now I'm writing you. Not to associate anyone who bears the name of a brother who continues in sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or a reviler, a hateful person, a drunkard, a swindler, a cheat. Do not associate with someone who bears the name of a brother and continues in things. Do not even eat with such a person. See, here's, here's what Paul is trying to say to us today. The church is not called to be separatists. We're not called to judge the world and because of their sin, we remove ourselves from them and try and create these Christian subcultures where everything feels safe and comfortable for the whole family. That's not what we're called to do. We're not called to accommodate the world. We're not called to, to be like the world where there's little difference between us and those in the world. We're called to create an alternate, balanced, credible approach where we as Christians can live fully as witnesses of who God is in the world and the type of people that God is trying to create us to be. And when we can do that, when we can be the type of people that God has called us to be, who have surrendered to God in all things, who are choosing every day to continue to surrender, who will screw up, but will apologize and repent and try and make it right, when we can do that, that is how we become a witness to the world. That is how the world says, man, these people, they live differently. I want some of that. They're not faking it. Maybe they're struggling through it, but they're doing so wholeheartedly. I want some of that. So when it's a church, as we figure out how to discipline and have that be a part of our conversation, where we love one another enough to have some hard conversations with those who are living in defiant, ongoing sin, we show the world that this is what God does. God changes us. God redeems us. And God makes us attractive so other people would want some of what God has given us. Church discipline is difficult. Church discipline is hardly done at all. And when it is, it's often done poorly. But just because it's hard doesn't mean it's wrong. Discipline itself, is, this, is what, this is what Paul is saying to us today. Discipline calls the church into sincerity and truth. It calls us to sincerely follow God, sincerely surrender ourselves and, and pursue Him. And it maintains our witness in the world. That is, what, that is what discipline does in the church. That in love for one another, we would seek to restore individuals who are making a shipwreck of their faith. We'd love them enough to say, listen, I care about you, and I don't want to see you make a shipwreck of your faith and of your life, so I'm going to do something about it. Discipline says I'm going to protect the testimony and the witness of the world. So what does that mean for us? Here's, where we're, here's, here, here's what I'll say. Discipline. Discipline, it starts not with the leaders of the church. Discipline starts with the church members themselves. 
See, too often what happens in discipline, church discipline, it gets relegated to the church leaders. When it gets relegated to the church leaders, and that's when we're, we're not doing very well as a church. Because what Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what Paul is describing, that occurs in relationship with one another. That as we're in the church body, as we have friends, as we're engaging with one another, we love, another, we love each other enough to confront each other when we're in the wrong. We love another, each other enough to say, hey, I'm going to say something to you because I see you walking down a dangerous path. Now, let me be clear. Paul's not talking about going on a witch hunt. Paul's not talking about us looking for things to criticize in one another. He's not talking about us making a fuss over open-handed issues. In fact, Paul is not even talking about people who know they have issues, and they know they need help, and they are seeking help. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about a friend, a brother, or sister in Christ, someone in the church who has claimed to surrender their life to God, but they are deliberately and blatantly choosing to disregard the word of God, blatantly choosing and arrogantly to serve themselves over God. Paul is saying, listen, we have to love each other enough to do something about that. We have to love each other enough to say, listen, I care about you, and I see you going down this path, and I'm going to speak a hard word to you because I don't want to see you continue down this path. If you've got a friend that is doing something dangerous or stupid, you see a friend that's beginning maybe to embezzle money from their company, you see them cheating on a spouse, doing something stupid, you see them uh, joining a violent gang, you see them doing a tell-all of the royal family on Oprah, you see them get a cat, you see someone do something deliberately stupid and dangerous, You see someone doing danger, something dangerous, you don't just stand by and say, I'm just here to support you because I love you. That's not, that's not helpful to them. Out of love, you confront them. Out of love, you say, no, this is not a good thing. You're about to make a shipwreck of your life and of your faith. You've got to draw some lines to say, listen, I care too much to let you continue walking down this path. Not to punish them. Not to shame them. Not to say I'm better than you. But because you love them, you want to see them restored. You want to see them redeemed. In fact, I figure this is a good opportunity this morning to talk about what does church discipline at Restoration Church look like? In fact, if you have a copy of our bylaws, Jake and I would love to give you a copy if you don't. Our bylaws make it very clear. Church discipline at Restoration Church, it looks very much like Matthew 18. And Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17 uh, the scripture says that if you have a problem with a friend, that they're in deliberate, defiant sin, what you're supposed to do is go talk to 10 other people about what's going on. Actually, no, that's not what it says. Paul says if you've got a friend in sin, you go one-on-one -on -one to them and you confront them. You say, I see this going on. I think it needs to change. I don't think it's right. And if that person uh, refuses to, to change, if they won't do anything about it, then you go and you take someone else with you. And the two of you confront that person. And if they still do not respond, then you take it to the church. You take it to the elders. And they investigate. And they confront. And if that person at that point, if they refuse to surrender to the Lord, if they refuse to surrender the word of God, at that point, the, the elders will remove that, remove that person from the body. 
remove that person from the church, again, not to shame them, not to punish them, but to, to waken them up from their pride so that they would be restored to the body. That's the goal. That's the goal. So here's, here's what this passage means for us. I don't know if you've ever been in church and heard a passage, I heard a message on church discipline. It's one of the things I love about Restoration Church where we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, we're just going to go through it and see what the Lord would teach us. We want God to, to give us the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that we like that are easy and fun. This whole passage on church discipline, here's what it means for us, one thing. And here's the question for you today. Are you connected to the body of Christ? Are you connected to the body of Christ? Because a superficial relationship with one another and a superficial relationship with the church is not going to cut it. It won't cut it. Oftentimes what we do is, is we settle on, whether it's in relationship with people or in the church, we settle on knowing other people, but we don't actually want them to know us. So we keep people at an arm's distance. I'm not going to let you in. I'm not going to let you close. I'll keep you at this arm assistance. We'll have superficial conversations about the weather and about daylight savings and about sports. But I'm not going to start talking about the deep stuff of my heart. I'm not going to let you into that. I'm not going to let you into my struggles. I don't do that. Listen, we stunt our growth as Christians and as parents and as spouses and as community members when we, when we engage superficially with one another. We are stunting the growth that God wants to see in our lives. Because what happens, and again, every one of us, we have this lens of this filter that we look and see the world in, right? And we get caught up in our own world and our own understanding. Where we look and say, well, I'm good. I'm right. Everybody else is a little bit off. I see things just right. If everybody see things just like me, life would be so much better. The problem is, we can't see what we can't see, right? We miss our blind spots. That's why they're called blind spots, because we can't see them. We can't see some of those rough edges that God has not had a chance to redeem in us yet. And that's why when we are in community with one another, when we engage with one another, we open ourselves up to one another, and we actually commit to the body of Christ, then that's when God uses other people as iron sharpens iron. Hey, man, I love you. I see this in you. Something that I think we got to navigate through together. Man, I, I care about you. I see you going down this path. If you continue down this path, man, I think you're going to make a shipwreck of your life and in your faith. Man, don't, don't, don't go there. That's why the beauty of the body of Christ, sometimes we can't see those things. We need one another to help us be who God has called us to be. I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. That in my own life, in my own faith, the greatest growth in my faith came when I opened my heart and opened my life into a group of men and invited them to speak into my life. One of them was my Sunday school teacher, Jack. One of them was my brother-in-law, Dana, or Pastor Terry. Invited them into my life and said, listen, I want to grow. I want to be what God has called me to be shared secrets, shared struggles, wrestled through some things together. And those guys challenged me in some very specific areas. And I'll be honest, there was some pain involved in that. And I hated going through that season. 
I hated being told, hey, you're wrong. You need to think about this differently. Hey, you need to try this differently. And as hard as that season was, I'll be honest, I grew more in that season than I grew in any other season in my life. And through that process, man, God shaped me in learning how to love my wife, helped me navigate how I raise kids. Through that season, I learned how to serve the Lord, how to teach his word. Listen, that's the beauty of the body of Christ. Now, I recognize we're still in the season of COVID. Things are awkward. Things are challenging. But it is so worth it that we open ourselves up and connect with one another in the body of Christ. That is the beauty of the body of Christ as we help one another become what God has intended us to become. That in those relationships with one another, we would be humble enough to recognize that we have a need and at times a willingness to be challenged and confronted. Because we know that the people around us love us and care for us and are trying to help us be who God has called us to be. Let me just say this on a similar note. If your relationship with the church is one where discipline could not happen within the church, then I'd say that your relationship with the church is not the relationship that God had laid out in Scripture. If you couldn't actually be removed from the church, maybe your relationship with the church is not what God has intended for you. Believe that God put that in there, put the church in there, and even this process of discipline for our good, for our benefit, so that we'd have a community of people behind us, living our life out, pointing us to who God is calling us to be and what God wants to do in us. And if you are at that point, you're like, I'm ready to commit, I'm ready to jump in, I'm ready to engage. And there's opportunities here at Restoration Church. I'm excited for this Easter outreach we have in a couple weeks. And I invite you, invite you to jump in with us on that. Show up at Madison House on Saturday, April 3rd. Help us love on some families. We need 60 dozen Easter eggs filled with candy. There's a family you can go and put some Easter eggs together, buy some Easter eggs for us. As we commit to that, to the body of Christ, I want us not just to, to be known, but I want us to love one another enough that we wouldn't stand idly by when we see someone else making a shipwreck of their faith. That we love one another enough to say, hey, I love you and I see this in your life and I think this needs to change. I pray that as a church that we would see sin the way that God sees it. I pray as a church that we would grieve over the sin in our church. And I pray that as a church that we would love one another to walk through life together. Let's pray.